with the Navigating It podcast, where we bring on guests to inspire you with their stories and help you figure out how to navigate this crazy thing called life. So please settle in and let's get to it. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this next episode of the podcast. I bring on Josh Dorfman from Northwestern Mutual, and we talk about the steps you can be taking right now to set yourselves up for financial success in the future. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Josh. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you talking with me today. My pleasure, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I was just... Wondering if you could just start out by telling us a little about yourself and what you do. Yeah. So my name is Josh Dorfman, and I'm a financial advisor with a company called Northwestern Mutual. Uh, My team and I assist individuals, families, and businesses with the various stages of their financial planning. Um, I'm a CFA charter holder and uh, a fiduciary. Awesome. Um, Yeah, Sean and I have been working with you for a while. You've helped us kind of figure out how to set up our our finances for the future and that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today because a lot of the time unless you're a finance major in college or something like that we're not often taught how to financially set ourselves up to be successful in the future and it's something I feel like a lot of people in their 20s and early 30s struggle with and so I'm really happy to have you on today so that we could talk a little bit more about what people can be doing right now to set themselves up for success in their future. Um, What do you think are like the first few steps for people who are looking to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So our philosophy is very much rooted in that of the certified financial planning board and that there are three phases to financial planning. The first one we call risk management, and this is laying the foundation to protect against whatever can go wrong. So that's paying off high interest debt, that's getting the appropriate type of insurance in place, building an emergency fund, really the defensive planning. And once that foundation's established, we're able to start speaking about some of the more exciting things in phase two, which we call wealth accumulation. And that's developing the investment strategies for things like saving for retirement, buying a home, getting another degree, or help someone else pay for theirs. Whatever those major life goals are, making sure that we select the right investments with the appropriate amount of risk. And then lastly, for for clients who are ready to withdraw from all of these accounts, usually as they get closer to retirement, uh, we're talking about wealth distribution. So we've spent our lives building this nest egg, which accounts do we access and when to promote tax efficiency and and keep your hard-earned money in in your pocket and out of Uncle Sam's. So for folks in their 20s and 30s, Morgan, typically they're going to be in phase one or phase two, or in some combination of those. And and that's often where we'll begin the conversation. That's awesome. And what do you think, um, you know, right now, it's really hard for people. We're in a pandemic. Um, A lot of jobs aren't as stable anymore. What are your tips for people who are feeling really unsettled in their jobs and how they can feel better within their finances during this time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And what we've observed, we've been, we had more meetings in March of 2020 than we've ever had in any other month in the six years that I've been practicing. And what I observed from those meetings is that folks that had been 
who had established a plan in advance of this felt much more secure than those who we were meeting for the very first time. And oftentimes their financial situations were actually very similar, but those that had gone through a planning process and, and felt like they had uh, established some of these different parameters just had a lot more confidence going in. So really what we believe a financial plan gives clients is a sense of security. And, and that's what we, we wanna make sure that we share. To, to get to the root of, of your question, the, the security really lies in that first phase, uh, having the uh, appropriate risk management piece taken care of. So uh, a healthy emergency fund, you'll hear people say anywhere between three to six months worth of living expenses just tucked away in the bank is the general rule of thumb. In a dual income household, that's usually three months. In a single income household, closer to six. And for entrepreneurs or for those that are in a high commission job, they might cheat closer to eight or nine months. Now, you might be thinking, well, that would have been, that doesn't help me very much if I haven't gotten that established just right. yet. Uh, so there are some unique circumstances available to us today that are gonna support that. So as of this recording on April 18th, some folks have started to receive their stimulus checks. And certainly that's not a, a tremendous amount of money, but it, it's something to help with that. Uh, other types of federal student loans, for example, have allowed for the suspension of payments. So folks that might normally be obligated to be making payments can temporarily pause those without any penalty. Now, those are federal student loans. Other lending agencies, including mortgage lenders, private student loan folks as well, have also given similar rules. Although you do want to make sure that you're, you're reading the fine print because sometimes there might be some interest attached to that, or it could even show up on your, your credit report. Even if there isn't an interest in penalty, it might mm -hmm. stay with you for a long time. So we're encouraging folks to make sure that they understand all of the ramifications before they pull the trigger on any of those opportunities, but they are things that are unique to the events that we're living in right now. Right. And what, as far as what you would tell your clients during this time, if you're getting those stimulus, if you get that stimulus check, would you recommend people to save that right away or pay off? Like, let's say you have outstanding credit cards or things that might put extra stress on you during this time. Would you say to try to, you know, pay that down right away so you don't have that extra stress? Or would you say to just put it in your savings for if you do lose your job or something like that? Yeah, it's going to be largely situational, but for the most part, if individuals have debt with interest rates that are double digits, we're usually pretty strong advocates for making sure that that's eliminated. The, you'll hear a lot of debate amongst planners, and both sides really have merit, but usually what we suggest is at the very least, you always want to have one month worth of expenses just because you do need to pay rent, and typically you can't pay rent with a credit card. Um, right. So we do need to have enough just to get you through that immediate term, paycheck to paycheck. And then once you have at least that base level of one month, that's when we would target higher interest debt, anything at 10% at, uh, or higher for sure, maybe as, as low as 8 or 9%, trying to eliminate that as best we can. Okay, awesome. And then um, as far as some of your clients, I know that we had talked previously and you had talked about how a lot of people are buying different kinds of like life insurance and different things like that. And could you talk about why people are choosing to do that right now? 
Mm -hmm. So it's an important part of, of planning in that first phase to begin with, but with the sudden awareness of, of mortality, I think a lot of folks are, who have been dragging their feet to get their insurance planning done have seized the opportunity to, to, to do that at this time. Insurance companies typically require clients to take a physical when they apply for the first time. And in light of social distancing, many of those firms are relaxing those requirements. And in some instances, even allowing that to happen without a physical. And of course, uh, that is going to be situational and, and company to company. But I think it's giving people who have been meaning to get started with that some peace of mind, knowing that they can get that accomplished, even in, in light of the, the current events. And what are the benefits to having life insurance? I feel like when you're so young, I mean, when Sean and I were going through that phase of the process with you about getting that done, I remember being like, I'm 23. Why? I'm so young and healthy. Why do I need to get this right now? And mm -hmm. um, could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So some individuals... Uh, even those that are, are married but might not have kids, they are financially dependent upon their, their partner to, to some extent. And it could be, you know, we started this mortgage together and I don't think I could keep up with the mortgage and the other bills if it were just me. Um, it could be that we have children who are dependent upon us or, or in some instances, parents or siblings that are dependent upon us. And if we were to pass away, that would create a lot of financial instability. And for our loved ones. So we want to make sure that we have the resources available to take care of that. And other times it could be, I don't have those dependents yet, but my plan is to have them in the future. I don't want to worry about passing a physical in six or seven or eight years when they're here. I want to just get grandfathered into the coverage while I'm, I'm young and healthy. And that's what many people will choose to do. Right. And also, um, I, I thought it's a good point to make that before I decided to change my career, I didn't even know that I was going to be changing my career, but I'm so glad that I got my life insurance done when I did because I probably wouldn't qualify for what I got previously because of the current job that I'm in and the higher risk that I do have. So that, that's another point too, don't you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And you know, with respect to, to confidentiality, won't share too much about it, but there are certain career paths or, or even just lifestyle choices that, that people make that even if they're healthy will cause their insurance to cost a lot more or in some instances they might not qualify at all. So becoming a, a small airplane, a small plane pilot, um, you know, it's people that like to, to skydive or bungee jump on a regular basis. Um, those are all things that could impact it. And if that's a path that people envision themselves maybe going to down the road, they might like to get squared away before those are, are part of their current lifestyle. Yeah, most definitely. And um, I was also wondering, uh, a lot of times parents co-sign on student loans for kids. And is it true that even if the child were to pass away, the parents would still be obligated to pay those student loans back? Is that true? In, in many instances, yes, not all, but in, in many. So uh, some student loans are immediately forgiven upon the borrower's death, um, and others will stay with the, the co-signer even after that were to occur. Okay. And so if you had life insurance and had those parents on as beneficiaries, they could 
potentially be helped through that process if that were the case. Is Absolutely. That okay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's such a hard topic to talk about because nobody wants to think about themselves passing away and it can be really uncomfortable even having that conversation with your partner, but it really is smart to be able to plan for your future. At least I've found. Yeah, I I believe you're right. And in the industry, some financial advisors will focus purely on investment planning and some will focus purely on insurance planning. Some will focus purely on tax planning. And all of those are important considerations within a financial plan. But really the, the, the true test is how do all of those segments interact with one another? Uh, those decisions really should be made in isolation. They should be made in conjunction. So our team and, and many planners uh, around the country really take a lot of pride in making sure that all of those elements are addressed as part of the overall discussion that they're having with their clients. Okay, that's, that's good to know that there's financial advisors that do, they focus on certain things, but they also can be comprehensive. Um, mm-hmm. And another thing that we had... Um, added to our plan when we worked with you initially was disability insurance. And can you talk about why that might be important to have for the future? Yeah. So when, when, especially when folks are planning to have children for the first time, there's an immediate reaction that yes, life insurance immediately comes to mind, but disability insurance is something that people often haven't even heard of, certainly less have, have considered. So when people hear the word disability, often what comes to mind is, some sort of significant accident that might leave them handicapped. And, and that certainly occurs, but disability encompasses anything that prevents you from working, which is actually most often an illness. One of the, the leading causes of disability in the United States is actually cancer. So uh, we want to make sure that we can help our clients that if they were to have some sort of health event that doesn't kill them, but prevents them from going to work, that they still have the income that they need to support their their bills um, during those times as well. Even if it might be a temporary two or three year absence from working, that can be a a critical time to make sure that all of those bills are paid and that they can still stay on track with their savings plan as well. Right, that's really important. And I, um, through my company that I work for, they offer me disability um, short-term and long-term. And say, like for me, for example, I have that disability through the plan that we've created, but I also have it through work. So how would those work together? How would I go about using them in that case? Yeah, so there's two types of disability insurance. There's something called short-term and something called long-term. Now, most employers are going to offer long-term coverage, usually around 60%. Not all do, and some offer more, some offer less. 60% is going to be the most common. And some employers will also offer short-term disability as well. Generally, the difference lies in that short-term disability might start within one or two weeks of having an injury or illness, and it will pay up to three months or up to six months. Um, Long-term disability typically starts after, you know, at the three-month mark or at the six-month mark and continues. And short-term coverage might have a higher percentage. In some instances, it could be as high as 100% of of your income. And for the most part, if you have a healthy emergency fund, you know, six months worth of living expenses, 
there isn't necessarily a tremendous need for short-term disability coverage because that emergency fund should be able to float you through that time. It doesn't mean it's bad to have, and if your employer is going to offer it, it's a, it's a really great benefit, uh, especially because it usually covers maternity leave. So for uh, expecting mothers, it can be a, a nice benefit for an employer to offer. But usually long-term is a more critical phase. Most folks, especially those listening to this podcast that might be in their 20s and 30s, typically don't have enough savings to replace what their entire career earnings would have been. So right. most of the time, individuals are saying, look, I can, get th- I can self-insure with a six-month emergency fund to get me through the short term, but if, I, if my income were to drop from 100% of my salary to 60% long-term, even, even if only for a few years, there's no way that I'd be able to stay on track. So what we typically do is supplement what our employers make available. We don't replace it. If they're going to offer it, we might as well take advantage of it. We get supplemental coverage to, to make up the difference so that they can stay on track with their plan. Awesome. So I could technically use both of the plans that I have then because mm-hmm. I always thought that, oh, I can't use the one because I have the other and I have to wait till the one stops or whatever. So I could technically use yeah, both many, if I had to. Ma- many times both will be paying out in conjunction with one another. So if someone makes $100,000, their, their work policy might pay for 50000 and their individual policy that they own might pay the other 50000 of their income together at the same time. Okay, that's awesome to know because I... There's so many things I really don't know. <laughs> and so it's great to be learning this with you right now. <laughs> um. You're not alone in that regard, Morgan. There's, there's so many different elements of, of financial planning, and it can be really intimidating for folks that are just getting started to, uh, to open. And they might say, man, I feel like I'm so behind. I feel like I don't understand what these words mean. In some instances, they might not know what's out there. Like, what are the blind spots in my plan? I, I don't have any idea. And, you know, we, we, I want to make sure that everyone listening knows that it's very, very normal. And even the clients that I have that work in the financial industry oftentimes are blown away when they come in to speak with us, which how many pieces of the puzzle are missing. Uh, it's really nothing to be in chamber embarrassed about. And I'm glad that you've always embraced those conversations. Yeah. It's just, I remember starting my first job and being given our, the package of like, these are the benefits and the things that we offer at your company. And even just that was overwhelming where I was like, I never had to ever deal with anything like this before. I never had to look at benefits. I didn't know what a lot of these things meant. And it was very overwhelming and kind of daunting. And then a lot of the time when you talk about finances, it's such a personal and private matter you're always kind of taught growing up, like you don't talk about money. It's rude to talk about money with people. And so it's hard when you're in the position of starting out and not knowing what, what to do or where to look to. And you feel like you can't always ask people about it because it's a private matter a lot of the time. And so it can be really hard to navigate figuring out how to set yourself up to be successful in the future and thinking ahead with your finances and all these other things that go into it that's not just about the savings, but it's also about insurances and things like that. So I really appreciate you talking with us because I think it might help a lot of people figure out what they need to be focusing on. Yeah, um, it's, my, 
It's my pleasure, Morgan. And to add to that, for, for folks that are listening, as you consider a financial planner that might be a good fit for you, it's, it's really critical to think, does this person, do I, do I think they really hear me? Are they listening? Uh, and do they understand where I'm coming from? Some advisors might be really, really great with the technical aspects of the plan, and the recommendations are going to be very well thought out. But what's also important is that they have the appropriate bedside manner, so to speak, to make you feel calm and confident as part of your plan. And, and what we found is that's a pretty critical distinction. Right. And you, we had talked before about how a lot of financial advisors, they might not talk to you if you're not making a certain kind of income. And so can you talk about how someone might go about finding a planner that works for them at the point that they're at in their life or what kind of steps they need to do before maybe talking to one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I believe there is a, a wisdom amongst folks that if they don't have a certain amount of assets or a certain income that no advisor will be willing to speak to them. And uh, I want to share that that isn't true. Um, there are certainly going to be some firms that say you have to have a quarter of a million dollars for us to invest before we'll have a conversation. And, and, and that does exist, but there are many others that are going to be much more willing to engage with folks at any stage of, of their career. So some advisors are going to be what are called fee only advisors. So they might charge a, a fee to, to build a plan. So they'll say, I don't care. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to buy insurance. You don't need to buy investments from us. We will just charge you an hourly rate or maybe a flat fee to, to build this plan for you. And, and that could be depending on what is involved anywhere from maybe $1,000 up to $10,000 that they'll just charge it as a lump sum one time to engage with them. And others are going to uh, earn a commission through the sale of different investment products or through the sale of different insurance products. And many times those types of advisors are, are more willing to work with someone to say, hey, I, I, um, you might not have a tremendous amount of wealth just yet. It's not going to be a particularly lucrative conversation for the advisor at this stage of the game but they want to work with you for several decades as you grow and you can form a really strong relationship together. They'll help you take those first steps to, to build your plan with the idea being that if they've, um, you know, if they provided you with a good service and, and you've, uh, you know, you, you've, they've provided trustworthy advice, then they'll be your advice. You'll be their client for life. And, uh, and they're more than happy to, to do that work up front. Right. And what, um, What do you think that people should do in the meantime before finding one? Would it just be to like maybe start saving the first step that you talked about before? Um, yeah. Yeah. The, a great thing for everyone to do is just to try to take a look at their income and their spending. So making sure that they have more money coming in than is going out and whatever is left over to save that they can be putting away. Now in a perfect world, they would be saving anywhere from 15 to 25% of their income. That's typically the level that you need to be at to be able to hit all of your goals. But we know that's not uh, attainable for everyone, particularly folks that are at the beginning of their career, and especially if they're living in a city that might have a higher cost of living. So that's the first step is writing out everything that you spend in a typical month and figuring out what can I be saving. And you know, 
just putting it into a healthy emergency or a rainy day fund to try to get to that three to six mark is a really great start for folks to be beginning. And from there, of course, we can certainly talk about the more exciting parts of the plan, the, the investment piece, um, once that baseline is established. Great. And um, where, how is it best to find a financial planner for you? So what I would often share with folks is find someone in your network. Um, you might have a friend or a friend of a friend that's, that's in the industry and, and getting a referral to someone who said, yes, I've worked with this advisor before. They took really great care of me. I feel like they would be a good fit for you. I think that's a wonderful place to start. Uh, and you know, a lot of firms will, will you know, certainly welcome call-ins. So someone might say, hey, I, I, I checked out your website and it, it looks interesting. I think I might want to have a conversation with you. They'd certainly welcome that opportunity. So if there isn't anyone maybe in your, your space, um, you can certainly search online to see who maybe in your geographic area would be a good fit. But especially in today's day and age, uh, you're not limited to that. Uh, I have clients in 37 states, you know, 80% of them I've only ever met virtually. Um, so that's certainly not anything that, that holds a client back from saying, I want to work with somebody out of state. Right. But maybe personally as a person, like someone looking, you might want to meet in person so you can get a good feel for that advisor. Too. So, some some individuals very much value that in-person relationship. For sure. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the stock market, because I feel like that can be a really, really intimidating thing for people to dip their toes in. And I'm someone who really has no knowledge in that area. And so it doesn't seem like something like in my mind, I'm like, how am I ever going to do that? Like get into that because it's, even if you're working with a financial advisor, it's scary to invest your money in something you're really not knowledgeable about. So could you talk a little bit about how um, people can learn more about the stock market and gain knowledge? Like where's a good place to start for that? Absolutely. So my favorite author in this space is a gentleman named Nick Murray. He's written a lot of great publications, usually for employees in the financial industry, but he's got a book that's written for clients as well called Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. It's a green book, and I'm a huge advocate of everyone taking the opportunity um, to read it. I think he does a great job of making it really simple while also writing with a tremendous sense of conviction. So a reader seeing it won't have any doubts that... Uh, that Nick Murray is very, very confident in what he writes and they can soak up that confidence from, from working with him or just from, re from reading him. There are other great podcasts out there, uh, YouTube channels, et cetera, with individuals who are uh, you know, pretty well qualified to be speaking. There's a lot of not so qualified stuff out there too. So certainly encourage folks to do their due diligence and make sure what they're hearing is good. But um, yeah, that's a great place to start. How do you know someone's qualified? Like when you're coming across their YouTube or their podcast or even their book, what should you be looking for? Yeah. So in the industry, there are a handful of professional designations. In fact, there are dozens of professional designations that uh, individuals might acquire. The most common one that you'll want to look for is something called the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner, uh, CFA Charter Holder, which I'm, uh, I'm proud to own. 
is generally considered the most rigorous. Uh, very few people have it, but it's often considered the, the gold standard uh, in the industry. There's another one called the RICP, which is Retirement Income Certified Professional. It's specifically for folks that are trying to distribute their retirement planning. And um, the, the last one, which appeals more to the uh, emotional side of planning is something called the BFA, Behavioral Financial Advisor, which I'm also proud to have. It talks more about what portions of the brain are triggered uh, with different stimuli that we observe in the news and what chemicals are released, what responses clients have to these different financial events and how to best guide and understand and, and lead them to uh, uh, an outcome that works in their favor as opposed to an emotional response. Right. You kind of talked about before um, how sometimes financial advisors end up kind of being financial therapists because you have to help your clients choose between um, like um, things that are going to help them emotionally within their finances and things that are going to stay on track with what a traditional plan is. And can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that finance has historically been taught and that advisors historically worked with clients, we call traditional finance, as you pointed out. And it's very much rooted in math. Whatever the computer or the calculator says is the best mathematical approach, that's what we're going to recommend. And that works really well if we're working with robots. But uh, we know that our clients are people. They're humans. They have different emotions, lessons they were taught, experiences, biases, judgments, etc., that might choose, might have them choose to pursue a different route. And they might very willingly acknowledge the path that I want to take is not the mathematically optimized approach, but it's what I can feel really confident in. It helps me sleep at night. And what the research shows is that if people are feeling more confident in a plan, they're more likely to actually follow through on it. And that's what's more important. Even if it isn't the most mathematically optimized way of getting there, if they actually do it, they're going to lead to better outcomes. So what advisors should really be doing is trying to understand what are those different behaviors that our clients want to, to follow? What can we do to, to motivate them so that they can sustain this? And sure, we certainly want to, to move them in the direction of being mathematically optimized, but what's that healthy balance for them to make sure that they stick to the plan? Right. And for like me, for example, we've talked about this before. I hate the idea of debt. Like I just don't want it. But when we look at our finance, mine and Sean's finances, we could invest our money better because a lot of our student loans have very low interest rates and we could do better by like with numbers better by investing extra income that we would be putting towards paying off debt than to actually paying off the debt. But for me, emotionally, I feel like I would feel just way better without a lot of that student debt or anything that we have accumulated. And, and so could you talk a little bit about, about that and, and talk about how people can invest in the, still feel they can invest in the stock market, even it, when they still have a little bit of debt and maybe in student loans or just anything with low interest rates? Absolutely. And Morgan, you're not alone with that concern, especially for our generation that most people are graduating from school with, with student loan debt. This is one of the most common concerns that we hear. One example that I'd like to share with folks is you can get a mortgage 
with student loans, but you can't get a mortgage without a down payment. So if someone's goal is to purchase a home, um, they might say, I need to get rid of all of my debt before I, I go ahead and, and take that on. And it might take them, you know, seven or eight years to pay off the student loans. And that might take them another three or four years on top of that to build their down payment. And suddenly they're looking at a decade long process to make that happen, where in, in reality, most mortgage lenders are not going to penalize you all that much, if at all, for, for having student loans. And if you can, of course, be making your, your payments, but saving as well, uh, you, can, you can have that goal come so much more quickly. Uh, the example that, that you raised about what about investing in the stock market versus paying down loads, the, the mathematical way of thinking about it is, is this. On average, on average, the stock market will grow somewhere between seven to 10% a year. Now, there are gonna be years where it grows 40%, and there are years where it's gonna decline 40%. There's a very wide range that it can fall into. But over the long term, on average, one might expect to see seven or 10%. So if their student loans have interest rates of maybe 3% or 4%, purely mathematically, the best thing that they can do is to make the minimum payments on their student loans and take whatever extra money they have and put it into the stock market so they can receive that seven to 10% over the long term. That is the mathematically optimized way of approaching their, their wealth building. But exactly as you mentioned, that, that idea doesn't jive with everybody. And some folks say, man, I just really don't like feeling like I owe somebody certain types of money. And for some people, it might be, I just hate that I have student loans, or I hate that I have a, a car loan. I just don't feel like I should have one of those. Whatever it might be, it's very personality-based, mm -hmm. and they might feel more of, a, of an inclination to try to accelerate those payments. So our job is to help understand what are those emotions that are behind the scenes, and how should we decide between the two, or some combination as a result. Right, yeah. And I mean, even if you borrowed me a dollar, Josh, I would have to, like, I, even if you're like, no, it's just a dollar, I literally have to, like, Venmo someone a dollar, even if it was, like, <laughs> because I just don't like owing anyone anything, <laughs> so I'm totally on that side of it, but that's what helps having a financial advisor is being able to talk through things like that and having someone who, like, works in the field explain like both sides of it to you. So you have like a really good idea of, of how you're choosing to use your money. Um, I was going to ask you about how in the stock market you've said, and I know it can just be um, situational, but a lot of the time when the, the market's down, it's good to just keep your money in it, it especially when you're younger because you have more time for the upswing. And could you talk about how um, now might be a good time if you're in a good place to buy stocks um, and why it's good to just keep your money in when it's down? Yeah, absolutely. With the, the recent downturn that we've seen, this is one of the most critical times to, to remind folks of the, the basics of the, the investment space. The stock market is extremely unpredictable in the short term. Six months ago, nobody had any idea that this virus existed, let alone could anyone imagine the type of global shutdown that, that we're experiencing. Uh, there are going to be many of these short-term things that occur. Uh, this year alone, we're going to have a presidential election. 
um, and the results of that will certainly impact certain industries in the stock market. Uh, there will always be those short-term events, and no one can reasonably predict uh, how that is going to play out. However, as we start to look to a more midterm, and especially a long-term horizon, it recovers. And we'll, we'll define the midterm as being anywhere from five to 10 years, long-term as being anything in excess of 10 years. Uh, historically speaking, the stock market always recovers. And what I, what I ask folks to do is look at where the value of the stock market is today. Then go back to the year that you graduated high school and see what it was back then. And then go back to the year that you were born and see what the value was then. And yes, we're gonna experience these short-term dips and they are significant. Uh, you know, in, in this particular instance, the, the US stock market fell by over 30% in, in a month. That's uh, certainly historic. But if you, if you look back and see the types of growth and gains that it's had over the long term, we know that it's gonna recover. So if you need the money in the short term, the best place to have it is to keep it someplace safe, like in a bank account where it's not going to be subject to these ups and downs. But if this is long-term money, and especially for, for listeners that are in their 20s and 30s that still have several decades before they plan to access their retirement dollars, uh, absolutely, this, this too will pass. And you just want to uh, allow it to do its, uh, allow the stock market to do what it's supposed to do over the long term, which is generate wealth and does not interfere in that process. Uh, despite the the fear that we can be experiencing. Right. And if you do feel stable in your financial situation, I like how um, when I've talked to you in the past, you've called this kind of time to be like black market shopping for stocks. And it can be yeah. a good time to get in the game and um, use a little bit of your money to get in the stock market because it will go back up. Absolutely. Everything is on sale right now. The stock market <laughs> is 20 to 30% off. This is the Black Friday or the Cyber Monday for the stock market. So for those that have their, their risk management addressed, you know, they have their healthy emergency fund, they have the right types of insurance, they have their high interest debt eliminated. This is a wonderful time um, to, to be entering. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, and then something that we've also done with you is um, we've gotten a Roth account. And can you talk about a Roth? Because a lot of people are like, I already have a 401k with my job. Um, what can a Roth do for me when I'm young and planning for the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where I often find there is some confusion in the investment world is on the tax piece. And most people are pretty familiar with the idea of income tax. You know, they earn a wage or a salary and you know, they have to pay some portion of that to the state, local, federal government. But there's another type of tax that I find people aren't as well versed in, and that's something called capital gains tax. A capital gain is whatever growth that you might receive on some form of investment. And that could be a stock, that could also be real estate. So to keep the math simple, let's say you invest $10,000 and it grows in value to $15,000, at which point in time you decide that you want to sell that investment. That $5,000 that you, you earned is referred to as a capital gain. And in many instances, you're going to owe some form of tax on that, anywhere between 15 to 40% at the federal level. So that can be very significant as it adds up over the course of time. So certain types of accounts, some of which you mentioned 401k, 
Roth IRA, uh, 529 for education, legally allow folks to avoid paying that capital gains tax, which can be tremendous over the course of several decades. So the difference between a Roth retirement account and a traditional retirement account lies on the income tax portion. Both of them will allow you to avoid capital gains entirely, so that's identical, but the difference is on the income tax side. So a traditional 401k or a traditional IRA, you might also call them SEP IRAs or simple IRAs, will allow you to receive an income tax deduction now. So if, um, you know, if, uh, if a household earns $100,000 and they deposit $10,000 into a traditional retirement account, they'll only pay income tax on that $90,000 mark. Oh, wow. But, I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a great way to reduce your tax bill now, but you're going to pay that income tax in retirement instead when you make your withdrawal. And the Roth is the exact opposite. So you're still going to pay all of your income taxes today, even on the money that you put into the account, but with the promise that you get to withdraw it tax-free in retirement instead. So many folks in our generation expect that taxes are going to be higher when we're retired than they are today. So the thought process is, well, if I can afford to pay the taxes now, I might as well because uh, they're going to be higher when I'm at retirement. I just want to get them out of the way. And a Roth account, which could be a Roth IRA or it could be a Roth 401k from their employer, allow them to do that. It's awesome too, um, when we were going through it, to see you're kind of able to give a general prediction for what that account will be at when we're at retirement age. And it's amazing how over time it can grow. But what is an account like that subject to when the stock market is down and our economy is being hit? What is happening to accounts like that? Yeah, so it all depends on what investments people have inside of them. But if they're going to be mostly stock-based as opposed to something more conservative like a bond, uh, they could have very easily seen their accounts lose a third of their value so far this year. So if they entered with $100,000 invested, they might see sixty-five dollars or $66,000 in there. Uh, that's very, very real. But what we encourage folks to remember is if they're not accessing the money right now, it really doesn't matter. If right. they were planning to let it, re if they were planning to use it two, two or three decades from now, it's just, it's just a, uh, a hypothetical and they can be confident that should they not interfere with it it'll certainly recover over the long run awesome um what do you think um is something that people in their 20s and 30s is, are there misconceptions out there that you've seen are there things that you really want people to know? Yeah, on the investment piece especially, one thing that you know, we've heard some folks say during times like these, and they, they will often say it when things are better, but we still hear it now is, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna exit the investment space now and I'm gonna get back in when we're at the bottom. And what, I, what I'll share with people is that's nearly impossible to do. Uh, this, this virus is totally uncertain. It's totally unknowable. The world's best scientists haven't figured out um, exactly how to stop it just yet. And, you know, the, 
the economists are doing everything they can to use that knowledge to, uh, you know, to, to, to keep the economy sturdy. And of course, you know, Congress has to be able to pass certain things too, none of which anybody can predict with any sense of accuracy. So if you hear somebody say, I'm going to sell my investments now while they're, they're higher and then buy back in when they're lower, they have to be right that it's going to be lower and they have to be right a second time to make sure that they actually get back in. And what we find is that very few people have the confidence to actually get back in at the right time. So sure, in a perfect world, if you could certainly know when the bottom was going to come, that would be a great philosophy to take. But in practice, hardly anybody can get that right. And most of the time when people play that game, they lose. Right. I just, I, yeah, I feel like you'd have to be an expert at it to really, I mean, even if you're an expert, you don't even know someone who's in yeah. the, in the field <laughs> can't even predict it. I mean, the I, experts don't know either. Right. <laughs> they really so, don't. <laughs> so it's like, just try yeah. to, I like to try to be, play on the safe side then be playing around with things. Um, so what do you see in your clients that are um, at the end of their like saving, like as far as retirement stuff and they're, they're getting to the point where they're taking out um, for their retirement. And what have you seen through their histories that they've done that really kept them successful where they're in a really good position now at their retirement? Yeah. Yeah, the, the conventional wisdom is that you want to be more aggressive when you're younger, be subject to more ups and downs, but have higher upside. And then as you get closer and, and enter into retirement, move to a more conservative approach that won't have the, the upside potential, but will be a lot more stable and predictable. That's conventional wisdom, and it you know, certainly has its merit. Um, we do find that sometimes folks will shift to become too conservative and what we need to remember is that with with life expectancy today if you retire in your 60s and if you live until your 80s or 90s which is very very realistic uh, that's a 20 or 30 year time period and inflation or cost of living is going to grow pretty significantly during that time uh, if you if you ask your parents or grandparents how much things used to cost when they were your age uh, I think you know you'd be very surprised to hear how much of a huge gap there was, and we have to remember that when you enter retirement at 65, you're going to be saying the same thing at age 85 or 90. Man, things were so much cheaper when I was 65. Right. So if they if they move all of their investments to things that are very very stable but don't necessarily offer the growth, they might not be able to keep up with the the rising prices over that time frame. So. It's certainly important to make sure that they have the appropriate safety measures in place, but we want to make sure that we don't become too conservative. And, and that is a mistake that we, uh, we see retirees making too often. That's super interesting. I would have never, ever known that. Um, That's what you have me for. I know. I'm so lucky to have you because I learned <laughs> so much every time I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, we, we, yeah, <laughs> we, we take a lot of pride in, in, uh, in helping our clients feel informed and, and, uh, and confident in their plans, Morgan. So it, it truly is our pleasure. We like teaching. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to touch on one more area before um, saying goodbye to you, but I want to talk about buying a house and, or an apartment or condo. And 
I know a lot of people say that our generation isn't buying like people our age years ago did. Um, and can you tell me or inform me a little bit about the pros and cons to investing in real estate and yeah. why we might see people our age not doing that anymore? Absolutely. So there are certainly some economic factors at play. Uh, for one, you know, many more many of our recent graduates have student loans that are more significant than our parents did. And as our generation tends to flock to more urban environments where cost of living is higher, uh, it's difficult for them to, to buy a home in an urban environment than it might have been uh, in a suburban environment several decades ago. And you know, there are other factors at play. Those, those aren't the only two, but, but they're big ones that um, you know, make it more difficult for folks to get started. And you know, there are certainly advantages to purchasing real estate, and we'll, we'll get into that. But I also, I find that I think some folks are a little uh, over-enthusiastic, and they feel like, man, if, I, if I'm not buying a house in my 20s or in my early 30s, like I'm just really not going to be on a, on a great financial path. And, and that's not true. Um, one thing that we found folks enjoy about renting is the flexibility um, to move. You know, should circumstances arise. So for folks that say, man, I just got offered my, my dream job in a different city and um, they don't want to feel like they're tied down and they have to sell a home uh, to, to do so. They, um, they might say, you know, I, I found a, a romantic partner that we, you know, this, this person wants to live in a different city. And, and so they appreciate the idea of the flexibility mm -hmm. that comes with it. But I'll also share with folks uh, that the, the benefits of owning homeownership don't show up immediately. Um, you you hear, hear people say they want to make sure that they're they're building equity in their home, and that's absolutely true. Equity is whatever you can sell the home for minus whatever you have left on your mortgage. And the idea is, well, if I'm paying a mortgage, I'm building that equity, I'm building wealth, as opposed to just paying rent. And that kind is of a absolutely account, right? In a way, yeah, exactly. And it's a it's a great way to grow wealth over the long term. But what I encourage people to remember is that there are still unrecoverable costs that come into to buying a home. So you'll hear people say, I don't want to pay rent and feel like I'm just throwing money away. But keep in mind, when you buy a home, there are going to be closing costs. You got to pay, um, you got to pay the lender, you got to pay for an appraisal. Um, you know, that can be, you know, uh, you know, in some instances, a five-figure payment that you have to make. Uh, when you go to sell your home, there's going to be a, a real estate cost, a commission that you paid your real estate agent. Uh, along the way, you're going to be paying interest on your on your loan. You're going to be paying property taxes. None of those are recoverable costs. They never show up in, in your equity anywhere. Right. So over time, but you certainly uh, you know, you're certainly able to generate enough equity, especially in a in a housing market like we've experienced, where prices have been rising, and you can build a lot of that equity. It is a tremendous way to grow wealth. I don't mean to discount that. But I do like to remind people it's not an instantaneous thing. Like I think they might often expect like, oh, I bought a home and in two years from now, I'm going to have a lot of equity inside of it. Oftentimes that's not the case. So for folks that say, I'm not really sure of what my future is going to look like. I don't know where I'm going to be living. I don't know if I'm thrilled about the idea of being a landlord and having tenants. Uh, don't feel ashamed of, of renting. Uh, it, it does provide you with a lot of flexibility and it can help some unforeseen costs. Now, so to buy a home, it, it's great. I actually just did it for the first time I myself know, this month. So, so thank great. you. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. So I'm, I'm certainly on board with doing so. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, but with, you know, just with the, the proper planning in place so that folks know what they're getting into and they can truly realize the benefits that come from it long term. Yeah, for sure. I'm really glad that we got to touch on that because it can be really hard. It's such a big in- investment to make and it's scary, especially when you've never like dealt with that kind of money before. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's crazy too because when we, Sean and I were on, um, when we were buying our first home, we found our house and we went, I don't know if we did it kind of backwards, but we found our house and then we went to the bank and said, what can we get approved for? Most <laughs> 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 like people find out with their banker what they can be approved for and then they go shopping. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were really planning on buying and then we just kind of stumbled upon like a great opportunity. Um, so that's definitely not the normal way to go about it. But we were shocked to find that we were offered double the amount that what we were actually looking for. And we knew that if we took the high number and bought with that big number that they gave us, which was double what we actually wanted for the house that we bought, we knew that we'd be house poor. And I think it's, it's scary to think that um, people can be offered that much money and how, I, I don't know, I just feel like it can be so easy to get stuck into that trap of, oh, well, they're offering it to me. I might, and they, I must be able to afford it then. Like, I'm just going to take out this huge mortgage. And can you talk about that a little bit, how people can kind of get caught up in that when they're shopping for a home? Yeah, absolutely. So you just want to make sure you're viewing it from the right perspective. So when a, a mortgage lender is offering to extend you a loan, what they're trying to figure out is what is the maximum loan that we feel confident this person can pay us back? Are they going to be able to make these payments? And that's what their concern is. Uh, So if somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean they can make these payments and save for retirement, make these payments and save for their kids' education, make these payments and have a social life and travel or do whatever it is that's, that's meaningful to them. They're just trying to figure out what's the maximum amount that we think they can pay us back and not default or not miss any payments along the way. And um, you, know, you just wanna make sure that you're thinking exactly, like you said, Morgan, what is the appropriate amount so I can buy a house that I really like, but I can still do all of the other things that are important to me, not feel like I just live to pay a mortgage. Right, and I think our banker probably laughed at us too because we like were so naive. We like didn't know really what we were doing like I said, we found the house and then we went to the bank trying to get the loan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and then when we, she came back and said, okay, this is what you're pre-approved for. And it was double the amount we actually needed. We were like, okay, we're actually just nervous even about the half the amount that we're asking <laughs> for. And we like made an extra meeting with her and we brought in all of our, we have like an Excel doc of all of our bills and what's coming in and what's going out throughout the month and we brought her all of that and we're like okay can you just look at all of this and just tell us if we can afford if we're going to be comfortable taking this on because even though you're you're saying that we can have it we're still really scared to sign this big mortgage I mean it wasn't you know to us it was a lot of money and 
it, it's usually a six figure or seven figure purchase and it may very well be the largest purchase you ever make the largest check that you ever write so there's a lot of reason to be concerned and if you're going to be taking on that obligation for 15 25 30 years yeah you, you want to make sure you can do it so uh yeah the, the 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 questions and hesitations that you had i would say are are, are very common and very healthy yeah and it's just funny looking back on that time and like our eyes were just so wide and like, <laughs> we don't know what we're doing, but we're like really lucky to have had like our, you as our financial advisor and other people in our life that were really supportive and help us guide us. Like just having that banker who was so willing to take the time to really talk with us about all of our concerns. And we just like went in and we're like, we don't care how stupid we look. We just need to talk about everything before we do this because and I think people can sometimes get stuck in traps too of taking out more than what they can really afford because they're afraid to ask those questions and um, are afraid to look stupid or not knowledgeable enough to, to be doing it, you know? So I like to share my story so people feel more comfortable <laughs> about looking stupid. <laughs> and, and I do it all the time. <laughs> Maureen, I'm I'm very proud of you and Sean for for one having the you know the courage to meet with these professionals, you know, a mortgage lender or myself as an advisor, and and go in and you know potentially expose themselves to the vulnerability of of feeling like they don't know. And uh, I've always welcomed the attitude that you've had of, hey, I want to learn, and I, I think that's a really great thing for for folks to have, is especially if they're working with a trusted professional that professional is going to give them good advice and take care of them and make sure they're being steered in the right direction. So uh, good on you and Sean for, for seizing the opportunity as early in your lives as you did. Thank you. We really appreciate it. We appreciate all your help. Um, and then quickly, can we, I'm sorry. I know that I said that that was the last thing, but I just thought of another thing really fast here. Um, can you talk about how scary and dangerous credit card debt can be and how that can be really detrimental to your finances? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is something that um, I, I find some folks are very uninformed on. Um, so, interest rates on student loans might be anywhere from three to to seven or eight percent typically, and they could be higher. Um, credit card interest rates are typically going to be between fifteen to twenty five percent, and some can be lower, some can be higher, but that's the most common range that they fall into so that means if you oh let's call it 20 percent on average if you owe ten thousand dollars on your credit card that means every single year you're paying two thousand dollars in interest alone so if you're making it so that's about 152 dollars a month give or oh take my goodness so let's say you make a 250 dollars payment on that card each month uh trying to pay down that that ten thousand dollar balance and in your mind you might be thinking well, I'm paying $3,000, so at the end of this year, it'll be down to 7000 But in reality, only less than half of what you're paying is actually going to paying down your principal or paying down the balance, and more than half of it is going just to interest. So those, uh, it, it makes it very inefficient to be paying it back. It takes you so much longer than you might think. And it's simply because that interest rate is really, really high. And that's not to say that credit cards are bad if they don't have their, their role that they're supposed to play, but this is something that can really hold people back in their planning. It can take them so long to pay it down 
And as a result, it stops them from saving for a home. It stops them from saving from retirement. Um, so we certainly encourage folks in the context of a greater financial plan that has all of these other elements that we've discussed along the way to do everything in their power to pay those off as quickly as possible. And, and that could mean that they um, find a new credit card that will give them a lower interest rate, sometimes a 0% rate temporarily if they transfer balances. Maybe they can have a personal loan that they take out with a lower interest rate. Um, or in, as crazy as it may seem, sometimes you can just call and ask and, and the existing company that you're working with will give you a lower rate just because you call and ask. Uh, so there, there are certainly avenues to get out, and we don't want to, people to feel like they're just stuck in a trap because there are ways that you can attack it more efficiently, but it, it's certainly one of the top priorities in the, the risk management phase is getting rid of high interest debt as quickly as possible. Right, and I've also heard of people who have been able to negotiate the debt that they do have on their their credit cards. Like if they're trying to consolidate to one card or whatever, they've actually been able to negotiate that number if they're in a really bad place and they can show that they're going to make changes. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's, that's the way people have been able to get themselves yeah. out of a, a bad situation yeah. too. Yep, absolutely. Now, there are some, some considerations there that um, might be negative, so we always encourage folks to make sure they're talking to a professional just to understand all of the elements that go into that, but in, in some instances, that could certainly be a good move for folks. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's so easy um, when you're like on social media and you're seeing all these influencers posting all these great products and it's in your face all the time to want to mm -hmm. spend outside of what you can really afford, but it is not a great idea to get into credit card debt. So I'm glad that you talked about that a little bit too, because it can really yeah. put you back in, in your goals. One more element to add to that, Morgan. I had a, a colleague who shared this example and, and it's I've heard other people talk about it before but I think it's really meaningful is to think what is my hourly rate and if you and if you're a wage worker it's pretty easy to know what that is but if you are a salary worker it might take some calculation but just think to yourself what is my hourly rate and what do I actually get per hour after tax and how many hours do I need to work to buy this product so if you see something advertised and it's $300 and you think to yourself, all right, well, $300, I know what that is. But if you put into perspective, that is 10 hours of work. Um, sometimes that can help people say, you know what, I don't think I'm willing to work 10 hours to get this product. And we find that that helps people rationalize their, their purchases a little bit more. It really takes the fun out of shopping when you think about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, it does. <laughs> so. Well, we really appreciate you talk, talking with me today. And um, is there any last minute thoughts that you have, last minute tips, anything else you want people to know before we say goodbye today? I, Morgan, I think you came today with a, a really great arsenal of questions on all the different phases of planning. You know, we talked about paying down debt. We talked about building an emergency fund and, and insurance and the defensive side. We talked about the, the offensive side, the investment piece and, and wealth accumulation, and, and we even touched upon the distribution phase. So I, I think we covered a lot of great things. What I'll add more than uh, just to, to wrap up is certainly encourage folks to have the confidence to reach out to a planner or an advisor or, or a mentor, just someone in their life who has done well financially 
that that they look up to. Um, like you were talking about before, it's it's nothing to be embarrassed about. Uh, our team is, is certainly open to having conversations with folks that are listening, and you know Morgan can share uh, links to our team's social media. Uh, we, we always welcome a discussion. Um, it's a judgment-free zone, and um, yeah, I'm I'm glad that you gave us an opportunity to share this with everyone today, and I hope everyone took away at least one one tip. Thank you so much, Josh. And if anyone wanted to reach out to you, how would they find you? Yeah, the, the best way is to check out our website. It's joshdorfman.nm.com. Uh, NM is in Northwestern Mutual. I have a, a LinkedIn page and a, and a Facebook business page too that people can check out. Josh Dorfman, CFA, Northwestern Mutual. And uh, yeah, from there you can, can message us or even shoot me an email at josh.dorfman at nm.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh. It's so great to talk to you as always. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. And thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure, Morgan. Stay safe. You too.